Um, well, good morning. My name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks this morning. We are continuing our series in Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to finish up Mark chapter 12 today, and then we're going to actually sort of press pause on the gospel of Mark and go into a new series next week, and then sort of uh, a little bit on the horizon, we're going to pick up Romans in the fall where we left off. And so we'll get back to Mark probably next spring. Uh, But as we conclude Mark chapter 12 this morning, we're going to be confronted with a question. And the question is this, what is genuine devotion? What is genuine devotion? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Uh, What is genuine devotion? We're all devoted to something. Uh, In fact, I would say that we are all devoted to several things. We all find ourselves being devoted or being loyal to a variety of things, and some of those things are serious, and then some of those things are not so serious. I'm devoted to my wife, Caitlin. I'm devoted to my three children, Judah, Olivia, and Savannah. But I'm also devoted to more like silly things, too, Uh, like sports teams. Uh, Maybe that resonates with more of the men in the room, some of the ladies. I'm sure you might have a favorite sports team. I have a lot of favorite sports teams, uh, right? Do you all have favorite sports teams? You're not very expressive this morning. We need need a little bit of loosening up, okay? Um, Okay, I have t-shirts of the teams I like. That sort of shows my devotion to them, right? In the Major League of Baseball, I know we live in Cincinnati. I root for the Reds when I'm there, but I'm a Braves fan. I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. They were the nearest baseball team. I grew up watching John Smoltz and Greg Maddox and Chipper Jones and watching them win World Series. In fact, we, we just won the World Series a couple years ago. I'm not sure if you knew that. It's great, really fun. In the NBA, I'm a Warriors fan. Joseph Cooney, also a Warriors fan, represent. We just won a uh, world title as well. It's pretty great. My allegiance is strong. In the NFL, we all root for the Bengals. Yes, I regret to tell you, they're not my primary team. They're second place. Second place is still good, but I'm a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. I grew up in Florida. And we also won the Super Bowl a couple years ago. So my teams are doing great. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to be devoted whenever your teams are doing good. But you know what? True devotion is really seen whenever the circumstances are not really what you would want them to be. And that brings me to my last sports devotion and perhaps my strongest sports devotion, yet also my most depressing sports devotion, and that is to my college of choice, which is the Florida State Seminoles. Uh, now, for those of you who know me, you know that I am pretty crazy about the Seminoles. I have a, a subscription to a message board where I can message all the other Florida State people. I watch all the games. You walk into my office at my house, there's an authentic game helmet of the Florida State Seminoles above my computer. I'm all about the Seminoles. Most of my apparel that I wear has some sort of Tallahassee, Florida State vibe to it. Uh, but you know, my Seminoles have been on hard times lately. Over the last four years, we haven't had a winning season, and that's been incredibly tough. And I'm just going to have a little church moment here. Some of you have not made that any more easy for me, uh, okay? Some of you like to ridicule me for that, and that hurts. That, it's very painful. Um, but my Seminoles are just not good. Uh, but I'm still devoted to them. I'm devoted to them despite the circumstances, and I'm even foolish enough in my devotion to them to think that this year it's going to be different. And we're going to win some games you know, the Hartness, they're big Wake Forest fans, so ACC rivalry here. So I think, you know, we're going to beat Wake this year. Uh, we used to do that every year for 30 straight years, but, like, they've been beating us. And it's like, why is this happening? Uh, and it really tests my devotion. But, but that's a silly thing. 
That's a silly devotion, I'd say. While I love sports and while I'm devoted to all of my sports teams, I would say that my devotion to my wife is different than my devotion to the Seminoles. My devotion to my three kids is different than my devotion to watching a basketball game on TV. So we have to ask ourselves, what is genuine devotion? Are there different degrees of devotion? What is genuine devotion? I think it's just a loyalty to something no matter what the circumstances might be. There's nothing in my life that could ever happen that would cause me to not love my wife. We have made a covenant commitment that no matter what, the only thing that will part us is death. There's nothing that my kids could do to ever lose my love for them. That's a genuine devotion. There's, there's no going back. When we talk about devotion, I think that we notice the depth of our devotion. Uh, but today, I think that what I want to talk about is not really the content of our devotion, right? We, we're talking about the content of our devotion. I'm devoted to sports teams, my family. But today, I want to talk about the depth of our devotion. Because I think that really keys into what genuine devotion really is. It's about the depth of your devotion to something or to someone. So let me ask you this morning. Of course, we are at church. So we're not talking about our devotion to sports teams. We're talking about our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you devoted to Jesus this morning? Would you claim that? Or would you claim, I am a devoted follower of Jesus? I think a lot of us here, most of us here would say, I I do claim that. I claim to be a follower of Jesus. But I think the more precise question that's going to confront us this morning in our passage is not whether or not we would claim that, but it's more so, is your devotion to Jesus genuine? And that's, that's a difficult question to answer, and one that we all need to answer. You see, each and every one of us will stand before the Lord one day, and the genuineness of our devotion will certainly be revealed. So it's better to ask ourselves this question now than it would be then. Is there a genuine faith before the Lord? Is it, is it legitimate? Is it meaningful? Is it genuine? The Gospel of Mark is broken down really into three big parts. Uh, I think we have a slide showing those three parts. You know, the first eight and a half chapters or so, Jesus is ministering in Galilee. And then from 822 to 1052, Jesus sort of makes his way to Jerusalem. And why does that matter? Well, that matters because when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, we know he's on his way to the cross. And then from 11.1, we see Jesus make this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, not riding on horseback, but riding on a colt, coming in to Jerusalem, knowing what was ahead. So we're sort of right in the middle of Jesus in Jerusalem. And ever since Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on this triumphal entry, beginning of chapter 11, Jesus has been in constant conflict with the religious elite. The scribes and the Pharisees, they have both questioned his identity and his authority since the beginning of chapter 11. That's why if you go back and you look at some of the last few sermons we've heard, if you look back in chapter 12, that's why the scribes and Pharisees asked him about the greatest commandment. They wanted Jesus to to tell them what the greatest commandment was. They wanted to catch Jesus in some sort of a contradiction. They asked him whether or not they should pay taxes. They asked him about the resurrection. And at every single turn, Jesus just completely frustrates these religious leaders 
with his superior teaching, wisdom, and understanding. And honestly, it's just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to watch Jesus confound the wisdom of the world time and time again. In verses 35 and 37, I think Jesus up until this point has proved that he is a great teacher, but now he's going to prove that he is the Messiah. Look in verses 35 through 37. We see that Jesus claims to be the Messiah. He is the one who would come from the line of David. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he's finally come to carry out the will of the Father. And verse 37 tells us that this great crowd that is there hears him gladly. But of course, it wouldn't be long until a different crowd called for his permanent silence. But even as we look at some of the context here, I want you to see what Mark is doing. What Mark, as the author of this gospel, what is he doing with what he's saying? You see, throughout all of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12, we see the authority and the identity of Jesus questioned, right? But at this point, Jesus has settled that issue. He's sort of just owned the scribes and Pharisees, right? He has proved that his identity is as the Messiah and his authority as the Messiah is complete. It's pervasive over all things. But at this point, when we come to our text this morning, what I want you to see is that if Jesus is truly authoritative, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, then when we come to this text, what we're going to learn is that that Messiah deserves our true and full devotion. Because of who God is, because of who Jesus is, he deserves our true and complete and comprehensive devotion. Notice what Mark now does in the text. He draws this conclusion here at the end of chapter 12, and it sort of goes like this. If Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah that we've heard about for thousands of years, if this Messiah has all authority, if all of that is true, then we are called to be fully devoted to him. So the end of chapter 12 here is all about devotion to God. It's all about devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the main point that we're going to see today is simply this. Our devotion to God must be God-centered, sacrificial, and comprehensive. Our devotion to God must be God-centered, sacrificial, and comprehensive. We're going to go sort of walk through our passage today and see those things. But I'm reminded this morning of just how easy it is for us humans to err. Do you feel that this morning? Whenever we got together with our volunteers before the service and we were praying for the service, I, sh- I sort of shared this as well. You see, lest we forget that as we come to our text, we should be reminded that the characters in this story, the people that we're going to see are the ones that are blind, are the most religious and the most knowledgeable in terms of their training, in terms of their theological knowledge. And we see that hypocrisy is not limited to a particular people group. If you claim the name of Christ this morning, my prayer is that you would consider your own devotion. That's what I'm doing. Let me just tell you something. Let me just level with you. I did not enjoy preparing this sermon. It was not a fun exercise for me because the entire week I sat there and was thinking about my devotion to the Lord. And I want you to know my devotion to the Lord is imperfect. My devotion to the Lord does not match his devotion to me. And if if you don't understand that this morning, then I want you to get there because that's how we should all feel. 
we will never be as devoted to the Lord as he is to us. In one sense, that's tragic for us. And in another sense, that is the best news that we could hear this morning. But nevertheless, we should consider our devotion. Are we devoted to God? Or do we just say that? So with these questions in mind, let's read our text together. Beginning in Mark chapter 12 in verse 38 and going to the end of chapter 12. God's word says this. And in his teaching, he, Jesus, said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, but who also devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. Verse 41. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This morning, we're just going to see two brief points in our passage, but before sharing those with you, I want you to see the reason why we have two points in our passage It's not because it's an easy structure. It's because there are fundamentally what's going on here is it's a comparison. Do you see that? In in verses uh, 38 through 40, we see sort of this negative example of the scribes. Do you see that in the text? Jesus is saying, beware of these scribes. These guys are the bad guys. My son always wants to know whether watching sports or a movie, who are the bad guys, Dad? Who am I rooting against? Uh, And I always tell him, and and he roots against him. So who who are the bad guys in this text? It's the scribes. This is a negative example. But then you also have a positive example given there in verses 41 through 44. We see this primarily in the wording of verses 41 and 42 and 44. I think we have a table to put on the screen. Uh, Can we put that up there? Um, There there it is. Okay. Look at verses 41 and 42. You you see sort of the, the comparison here, right? Many rich people were putting in much. And it's compared with this one poor widow puts in two small coins. You see it in 44 as well. They all, what did they do? They gave from their surplus. And she, from her poverty, put in the offering. This passage is fundamentally a comparison between two different ways to live. Do you see that there? There's a negative example and a positive example. There's fraudulent devotion. There's this fake devotion And then there's a positive example where we see genuine devotion. And what I want you to know this morning is that you can choose either which way to live. You can put on a facade and you can sort of create a fraudulent devotion to the Lord for the rest of your life. You can do that. Many people do. And they come to church every week, but their faith is not any more real than anyone who's lost. You can do that. You can live that way and you can invest your energy in creating a facade Or you can invest your energy, you can invest your life 
into truly submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two options that we have in this text. There's no middle ground. So to whom will you be devoted this morning? To whom will you be devoted for the rest of your life? Will you be devoted to the Lord Jesus? So let's look at these two examples together. We'll make some observations along the way. We'll see how this passage applies to our own hearts and lives. First point that we see here is that our devotion to God must be God-centered, not man-centered. Our devotion to God must be God-centered, not man-centered. Now, I don't think that when you write this in your journals right now, that that's going to be anything that's massively revelatory to you, is it? Right? Devotion to God should be centered around God. Like, okay, pastor, I get it. Like, why do we need to say that? I think the the interesting thing about this text, even when I wrote this point, I was thinking, this is pretty obvious, right? Our devotion to the Lord should be about the Lord. But what makes this so interesting is, is that the people in this text are the most theologically astute. The people in this text that have the most knowledge about God do not have a God-centered devotion. They have a man-centered devotion. Do you see that? Jesus does not beat around the bush at all, beginning in verse 38. Can you imagine? I mean, the scribes are likely just sitting right there, and Jesus begins his teaching. Hey, beware of these guys. Not good. Judah, these are the bad guys. That's what I would tell my son, right? Like, these are the bad guys right over there. Jesus does not beat around the bush. He confronts these scribes straight away. This teaching in verses 38 through 40 must have been just completely eviscerating to these religious elite. You see, just previously in this chapter, Jesus taught about the greatest commandment. These scribes try and catch Jesus in a contradiction. They say, what's the greatest commandment? There's 613 laws. Which one's the best? And Jesus just so wisely says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he says, there's also a second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think that Jesus gave, you know, that, that second one was free, if you notice. The, the scribes didn't ask for the second greatest commandment. Jesus just volunteered that. That was free to them. But I think Jesus gave them that second greatest commandment, too, because he knew what he was about to do in this text. Because what I want you to see is that the scribes here are guilty of breaking both the primary and the greatest commandment as well as the secondary commandment. Do you see that? The scribes, these religious leaders, they knew the law better than anyone else. But they were the ones that were guilty of breaking the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. How do they, how do they break these laws? Well, let, let's look together. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they break this command in the way that they have an ostentatious and self-centered behavior. Look at verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, beware of the scribes. What are, we, what are we to look out for? What are we to be aware of? Beware of these men who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. He says, beware of these guys. When they show up to worship, their worship is not about God. It's about themselves. These religious leaders invented the humble brag. They wore these long robes to show how spiritual they were. Right, these robes would call, cause all eyes to turn their way. This morning I walked in and Hunter you know, asked, he said, man, I really like your suit jacket. I can tell you, you always wear that whenever you're going to preach. 
And that's true. I always like to throw on the jacket when I preach just because I respect the pulpit and uh, I think it matters. Um, and that's just a personal thing. But, you know, I, I told Hunter, I kind of was wondering, should I maybe lose the suit jacket this week so that I'm not like the guys that are showing up in these long robes? Uh, am I like an example of the negative here? Uh, but I do it every time I preach, so I don't think it's bad. Um, but you can imagine that these, these religious leaders were not really contextualizing to their cultural context. They were dressed to the nines. They would have special shawls that they would wear when they prayed, and they would just keep those on. And they would just walk around. Oftentimes, these robes would be white, and so you'd have a lot of sort of gray and brown-colored clothing, and then you'd see these guys in, robed in white, and you're like, wow, that's impressive. That guy is impressive right there. He's drawing attention to himself, isn't he? They, as they walked into the synagogue, right, it would become a spectacle just by what they were wearing. In the marketplace, right, it says they longed for people to notice them and to call them rabbi, call them teacher. It would be like a person today who, who's got a doctorate degree and you're maybe friends with them, but then they demand that you call them doctor so-and-so. Like, you know, I, I did work all that time, so you should really call me doctor so-and-so. Like, when they walked into the marketplace, it's not like, hey, Jimmy. It's like, hey, doctor, Dr. Jimmy, is, is, that's doctor to you. Thank you very much, right? They wanted people to notice their station. They wanted people to notice their accomplishments. They wanted people to notice them. Not only that, but they also sought out the best seats in the synagogue, Seats that were both comfortable and useful to put themselves on display. Now, Oaks Church, I think I should say this. The best seats in this area you are, are right here in the front. And, and we don't populate those as much as we ought to. Um, to in the future, maybe, maybe these wonderful gentlemen here, I actually ask them to sit there. Because normally there's like two rows of just emptiness. And it makes me feel like I smell or something is wrong. But uh, the best seats are up here. So in the future, just populate these. It'll be good for you, right? Um, but in the synagogue, what would happen is that they would have these benches at the front and along the sides, and what it would do is you would be facing the audience. So imagine if there were like benches at the front, but they were facing you, and there's benches along the side, and they're facing inward, and their goal was to sit in those best seats. Why? So that you could see them, so that a whole bunch of people could look and see them. They wanted to be seen. When you get right down to it, it's not hard to see here that the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't love God. When they showed up to worship, who were they worshiping? They were worshiping themselves. They were not interested in making God's name great. They were interested in making their own names great. So Jesus says, beware of these people. Beware of these hypocrites. You see, not only do they break the greatest commandment, they also break the second greatest commandment. They don't love the Lord their God. They love themselves, but also they don't love their neighbors. They break this commandment by the way that they treat the most vulnerable in society. Look at verse 40. It says that these scribes, they devour widows' houses and make a pretense for long prayers. This is just simply astounding. You see, in the first century, widows were some of the most marginalized and forgotten individuals in Roman and Jewish society. And they did this, and, and they would basically take advantage of these most vulnerable people. 
And they did this in a variety of ways. They would do things where if they're a religious leader, they might offer legal advice. They would say, you know, I'm an expert in the law, so I would, I'll give you legal advice, but it'll be for a fee. When the widows would say, well, well how much? They'd say, well, how much do you have? Right? They would mismanage their estates when their husband would pass away, leaving them with an estate. The scribe would say, well, let me handle that. Let me handle that for you. They would steal. They would mismanage the estate so they could profit off of the death of this widow's husband. They would take money from widows in exchange for just praying for them. I'll pray for you, but you you need to care for me too. They would get rich off of poor widows and these injustice, injustices are just despicable. They're evil. To defraud, manipulate, and bring harm to the most vulnerable people in our society is truly sickening. And as a side note, as we've already mentioned, this is one of the main reasons why abortion is so evil as well. Because it attacks those who are the most vulnerable in our entire society. Is there any other human on this planet that's more vulnerable than a baby in the mother's womb. And yet the culture of death that is so pervasive amongst progressives in our culture would seek to murder and would seek to destroy those who are the most vulnerable. And when we look at these injustices, when we look at even how the scribes would treat these widows, we look at just how evil the human heart can be. We look how horrible and sinful each and every one of us can be. See, not only are these religious leaders guilty of breaking the law of Jesus, but they also go against what they learned in the Old Testament. See, the crazy thing about this is it's not like the scribes were without an understanding of all this. There were many laws in the Old Testament that talked about caring for widows. This was not a new thing. The Old Testament expectation was that the scribes would care for widows, and yet here we find them taking advantage of them. And all of this injustice and all this perceived evil, I think the most sickening part of it all is that these religious leaders did all of this sin, did all of this evil in the name of God. Let that sit with you. How evil and despicable were these men that they would do all of this injustice in the name of the Lord. You know, sometimes it's hard to find illustrations for your sermons, trying to illustrate your point, and sometimes they just happen to you. And this week, it happened to me, and it was great. I was taking a break from writing a sermon, and Judah came. I went down to our basement, and Judah just brought me a book. And he said, Daddy, can you read this? And I had been thinking about this text, and I was like, sure, buddy. So I opened it up, and as I'm reading it, I just thinking to myself, this is the perfect sermon illustration. So I'm going to read you this book, as odd as that sounds. Uh, and we do have uh, the, we put it up here on the screen. Thank you, Drew, to putting all of these slides together so that you can follow along with me. But, uh, but I want you to read this. I'm immersed in this text all week, and then I read this children's book. It's called Fool Moon Rising. And it says this. You can go to the next one. Keep going. Next one. Next one. That's the one. Very good. You can follow along from here, right? Dear God, I heard a cosmic story and wondered if it's true. The moon was stealing glory, and this is what he would do. 
He bragged each night that his great might could make the darkness flee. And like a kite, he scaled the heights and said, hey, look at me. The pompous moon would only croon the songs that praised his name. He hoped that soon the cosmic tunes would bring him greater fame. It's really strange, but he could change his shape throughout the year. His face would change, then rearrange, and sometimes disappear. He loved the thought that astronauts had danced across his face, and cosmonauts and monkey-knots would visit him in space. He bragged that he could cause the sea to rise and swell each day, then all could see how mightily he'd pull the waves away. He'd boast away and love to say, I am the greatest light, until one day a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight. He saw his pride and then he cried for all that he had done, for he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun. So now each night a new delight is what he loves the most. Reflecting light with all his might, the sun is now his boast. So God, I pray for grace each day to find the joy that's true in all my days and all my ways in making much of you. I wonder today, do you have moments when you possess the same foolish pride as the moon in this story. I love kids' stories because they're so simple, so easy for us to understand. Do you find something a little bit in common with the moon? Do you find something in common with the scribes in this passage? I know I do. Don't we all struggle with pride? When you think about your career, is it about your accomplishments and what you've done? Or is it about the blessings that God has bestowed upon you? When you think about your family, when you think about your bank account, when you think about whatever you have, do you boast in those things? When you think about your own spiritual maturity, Christian, do you boast in yourself? Or do you boast in the Lord who is sanctifying you through his Holy Spirit and is at work within you? I think if we're honest with ourselves that we would admit that far too often our devotion to God can really be just devotion to ourselves. This passage should cause us to do a little bit of self-reflection. Do we see God as a means to an end, or do we see God as the end in itself? Is your devotion to God about what it can get for you, or is your devotion to God about God? I wonder, looking at this passage, when you pick your clothes in the morning, are you like the scribes? Are you seeking to honor the Lord with what you wear? Or do you want to draw attention to yourself? See, the Bible has much to say about modesty. It has much to say about honoring the Lord, even in something as simple as what we wear. I wonder, do you long for others to show you accolades and praise? Do you justify your desire to be made much of, maybe by just saying, oh, it's, you know, it's just my love language, words of affirmation, it's just my love language. It's just how I am. Forgetting that 
biblical affirmation is affirming what God is doing in you, not affirming you. It's praising the Lord, not praising you. I wonder when you pray and when you worship, are you more concerned with the way that you look or the way that you're perceived? Or do you freely worship the Lord Jesus Christ when we come here? Christian, if you're truly in Christ, then you are in Christ because of his grace, not your merit. We can do absolutely nothing to earn God's favor. But if you are in Christ, then the Lord Jesus expects you to act and to behave like we are genuinely devoted to him. You see, Jesus does not separate true devotion to God from individual moral conduct or social justice. What we do matters. It really does. Genuine devotion to God must be God-centered. And I wonder today, if you just ask yourself, is my devotion to the Lord about the Lord? Is it about making much of Him? While it may sound a little too obvious, I think there's many times when in the name of religion we tend to be devoted to our glory more than the glory of the Lord. But if this is what counterfeit devotion looks like, then what does real and genuine devotion look like? Let's read again verses 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and he, he watched the people putting money into the offering box and many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny and he called the disciples to him and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The second thing that we see today is that our devotion to God must be sacrificially dependent and completely comprehensive. I chose those words specifically. Our devotion to God must be sacrificially dependent and completely comprehensive. The scribes represent a negative example, but the positive example comes in an unlikely source, doesn't it? See, Jesus sat in the synagogue observing the way that people would go up to the offering box and give money. Two characters emerge. There's a lot of rich people of whom the scribes would have been a part. And then there was one poor widow. Jesus just seems to be fascinated at what's taking place in front of him. Many rich people are giving lots of money. And then this frail widow comes forward. She gives two small copper coins. Now these two copper coins are called the Roman lepta. They were tiny and they were very thin. I think we have a picture of them right there. They're really zoomed in. You can see these two coins really aren't worth much. In fact, they're about a centimeter in diameter, and they had been rubbed so thin that they would be extremely thin pieces of copper. They really aren't worth much. The ESV says here that they're equal to a penny, but these two coins would amount to about one one-hundredth of a denarius. Now, for those of you who don't have your biblical conversion charts in front of you, a denarius is just simply a day's wage. So you'd have to work for a hundred days making this much in order to just, or you'd have to gather a hundred times this to make enough for one day of work. What Mark is showing us here is that this is an incredibly small amount. I mean, if you take like minimum wage, this is like less than a dollar. It's one one-hundredth of a day's wage. 
So where the scribes were guilty of breaking the greatest and the second greatest commandments, we see here that in giving this Roman lepta, this, this, these two small coins, the widow actually follows both the greatest command and the second greatest command. See, her devotion to God can be seen in the way that she makes an incredible sacrifice. Her worship is costly. Her devotion to the Lord is genuine. But not only does her devotion and her generosity exhibit love for God, but it also shows love for her neighbor. And that's the crazy thing about this. Whenever I read this text, paradoxically, it is that the gift that she is giving will be used or should be used to help widows. The gift that she's giving to the temple should be used to help widows. But paradoxically, she's the one that's giving to this offering that is being mismanaged by the religious leaders. But it's the widow who loved her neighbor by contributing to the offering. You see, she wasn't unconcerned about this mismanagement. She was concerned about loving her neighbor. She wanted to show her love for neighbor and her love for God in the way that she was generous and gave. And this entire scene is just astonishing to me. The arrogance of the scribes contrasted with the humility and the generosity and the pure devotion of the widow. I mean, I, would, I don't blame Jesus here for just sitting and looking and watching all of this take place. And of course, Jesus can't help but turn to his disciples and take the opportunity to teach them. You see, Jesus looks at things a little bit differently than we do, doesn't he? If I was there in the synagogue, I probably would have looked at all of these many rich people bringing many coins and dropping them in. I'd probably look at that and say, man, those guys are pretty great. But Jesus sees things differently. Jesus says in verse 43, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. You say, how do you, how do you mean, Jesus? That's, that's too lepta. That's not a lot of money, Jesus. He explains in verse 44, for they contributed out of their abundance and she out of her poverty put in everything she had, all she had to live on. We may be tempted to be impressed by those donating large sums and of course the church needs people who donate large sums, but what we learn here is that Jesus understands things differently than we do. In fact, Jesus knew that the, the large sums of money that were being donated were likely that surplus that we talk about here in verse 44, that surplus likely came from those widows that they were taking advantage of. But Jesus sees this poor widow give all she had and knows her heart. It's important that we probably shouldn't be judging people when we see what they give. When we see their generosity, when we see what they're able to give, we should be mindful of that. It might be their very last coin. Jesus here looks at the heart. You know, genuine devotion cannot be bought. Genuine devotion must be lived out. And some commentators argue that this woman gave literally everything she had that this text says, that she would not have even known where her next meal was coming from. Two coins that she gave to the Lord made it so that she might even go hungry. But she cared more about being faithful to God than being faithful to herself. She was genuinely devoted to God above all else, even the food that sustained her life. In college, I was a poor college student. I worked hard. I had a job. I went to school, and I tried to make ends meet. And there was something special about that time in my life. 
I'm certainly not as poor now as I was back then. I'm extremely grateful for that. But maybe you're like me and you can look back to those times and you can just sort of remember with a smile on your face how the Lord was faithful even in your poverty. There's so many times that I did not have financial stability and I just was doing my best. I couldn't get help from any places, but I would oftentimes have no idea how I was going to pay my bills. I would have no idea how I would pay for school. But God was so faithful to me. There's many stories where I needed a particular dollar amount by a particular day, and the Lord provided that and more at every step of the way. Because God provides for his children. So many of you know that to be true. And I wonder, friend, are you dependent upon the Lord? We step back and we see these two different competing ways to live. We can have a fraudulent devotion to the Lord or we can have a legitimate and real devotion to the Lord. I want you to see that what we learn from this text is that you cannot be devoted to the Lord without being dependent upon the Lord. Do you see that? We can't be devoted to the Lord without being dependent upon the Lord. And so the question then becomes, are you dependent upon the Lord? Is your devotion to the Lord comprehensive? Is it far-reaching? Are you dependent upon Him? Are you devoted to the Lord? And I want to ask you some questions, and I'm not seeking to be intrusive, but seeking to ask questions that will help us to think of our own devotion. And these are questions I've asked myself this very week. Does your devotion to God extend to your bank account? If you want to know what you care about and love, just open up your online banking and look. If your checking account history were to be put up on the screen, would it show a devotion to the Lord? Does it show consistent and sacrificial giving to the church? Does it show consistent and sacrificial giving to others in need? Are we a generous people? What about your calendar? Oh, this one's so tough, isn't it? I think it's a lot easier to write a check than it is to carve out time on, on a calendar, don't you? Some of you may not agree, but you know, we all have the same number of minutes and hours every day. And I wonder, does your calendar show that you are devoted to the Lord? Are you faithful to wake up each morning and read your Bible? I'm not trying to be legalistic when I ask that, but your calendar will show whether or not you are devoted to God. It's a very simple task to sit down and read your Bible. But it's a task that there are days that I will go without it. If I'm being honest, there are days that will go that, that I might not read my Bible. And I just look at myself and just think, man, how can I not be devoted to the Lord? That time is so simple, but it matters. Same thing with prayer. Does your calendar include prayer to the Lord? You want to know if you're dependent upon the Lord? Look at your prayer life. Your prayer life is the number one indicator whether or not you are dependent upon God. Because if you're not taking things to the Lord in prayer, then you are not depending upon the Lord. Of course, we know that our calendar isn't just about us. Our calendar is about the church, too, and how you care for others. Do you leave time in your schedule to serve the Lord and to serve the church? And I'll just be honest with you this morning. We are in desperate need of volunteers to set everything up on Saturday. Just very simply, we're in desperate need of people to help set all of this up. There's a lot that goes into all this. I'm here each Saturday, but there's a group of about 10 to 12 people that come 
each Saturday. And of course, during the summer, it's more difficult. But, but that group needs to expand. We need more people to just say, Saturday is a tough day, I get it. But I'm going to be devoted to the church and devoted to the Lord, and I'm going to sacrifice. And I want my calendar to reflect what is true in my heart, that I am devoted to the Lord. And that could be said of any of our teams. That could be said for teardown after this. That could be said for serving in our kids' ministry, serving in our family ministry. So many ways that we can understand that our devotion is not just about me, it's about serving the church too. And I wonder, what's the next step for you to, to be doing that? Could you join a team and begin serving in that way? I wonder if your devotion to the Lord is seen in your commitment to the local church. You know, being devoted to God means that you are devoted to God's people. If Jesus shed his blood for us, that should tell us how much Jesus thinks of his children. He's willing to shed his blood for us. Are you willing to maybe lose that bonus to be able to spend time with friends by saying no to a work thing and yes to a church thing? Are you willing to sacrifice time on your schedule to invest in intentional discipleship relationships that will help you grow spiritually and someone else grow spiritually? Are you willing to make those sacrifices? The church is about living in community with other believers and knowing how you can help and encourage them and how they can help and encourage you. And God has called each and every one of us to be members of a local church. And if you're here this morning and you aren't a member of a local church, and I would encourage you to show your devotion to the Lord by joining a local church. Showing your devotion to the people for whom Christ died. So our devotion can be measured in a lot of ways. And these questions are certainly not meant to be accusatory, but more diagnostic in nature. You could continue this line of questioning to a lot of areas of our lives. But the question that we should really consider is, is my devotion to the Lord genuine? Am I living in view of his glorious grace by being devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is my devotion real? Jesus teaches us the importance of true devotion here in Mark 12, but just in, in a couple chapters, we're going to see the greatest picture of devotion that the world has ever seen. You see, genuine devotion is best seen in the devotion of Christ to obey his Father and going to the cross and laying down his life for his children. You see, our devotion to Christ is merely a response to Christ's devotion to us. We give everything to God because God gave everything to us. And we offer up genuine devotion because Jesus offered up his very life so that we might live. So at the end, we just simply ask ourselves, is my devotion to the Lord genuine? Is my devotion to the Lord at least trying to be like Christ's devotion to me. This morning, ask yourself, Jesus gave his all for me. Am I giving my all for him? Let's pray.